0: Welcome to GWEEK episode 20 for Monday, October 10th, 2011. GWEEK is where the editors and friends of Boing Boing talk about comic books, science fiction and fantasy, video games, board games, tools, gadgets, apps, and other neat stuff. I'm Mark Frauenfelder. I'm joined today by Tom the Dancing Bug cartoonist Ruben Bowling, who draws a great comic strip that appears in Boing Boing and many other publications every week. And we are both incredibly excited about our guest today, He is none other than the amazing Al Jaffe, who has been a member of Mad Magazine's usual gang of idiots for 56 years. Best known for his Mad Fold-In, which has appeared on the inside back cover of the magazine since 1964, he's also the creator of a long-running column, Snappy Answers to Stupid Questions, and my favorite, his dozens and dozens of whimsical inventions that border on the edge of plausibility. Ruben is in Al Jaffe's studio right now to talk to him about his remarkable career.
1: Thanks, Mark. Yeah, uh, it's a great honor to be sitting here in this uh, in the studio. Uh, Al, you know, you really just described it well, Mark. Al is really one of the greatest cartoonists ever, and he's revered, uh, you know, among um fans, but also among cartoonists He is a cartoonist. Just uh, just revere his work for his for its uh, inventiveness and, and incredible humor. Um, and I think the, the one of the things that we really wanted to uh, to talk about today, uh, these don't in any way define you out because you've done so many other things, but you probably are most famous for your uh, foldings uh, that Mark talked about these these things that are in the when the back cover of every uh, Mad magazine, and you have this book out that just came out. And I, I see a, a, a maybe it's an advanced copy or, or no, actually it is out now. It is out. Yeah, now. it came yes. out last last month. Um, the Mad in Collection, 1964 to 2010. It is a beautiful four hardcover book uh, in a in boxed uh, volumes, uh, and it looks incredible. Um, now, if you don't know what a in is. Uh, you're out of luck because this podcast is the, not the way to uh, to introduce it. But uh, I talked to Al before and he said maybe I could just, I would just describe one and then maybe you can ask him about it a little bit. That sounds good. Um, so, yeah, there's one. I, I brought my old book, uh, Mad Fold This Book. This is a, the, the cheapo paperback version that was non-prestige version that was put out uh, a few years ago. There's one, it's from 1969. Al's uh, been doing these for since 64. And this one has the question, what great new chasm has been discovered that dwarfs even the Grand Canyon? And there's a picture of this great canyon with uh, a, 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 a view from the sky, little cars and people look, looking down. And uh, then you fold in the, uh, you do this fold, and the canyons morph into... A picture of a bald older man yelling at uh, a younger, long-haired man, uh, and, uh, and it's uh, and the and the explanation, the words morph into the generation gap. Um, so it's just when you look at this, the inventiveness is just just amazing. Um, and Al, do you, I guess one question I asked you before? Do you do you remember this one, or or uh, or do or, or do you want to yeah. talk about generally? Uh, uh, your your thoughts, you know how how you would put this together.
2: Well, I uh, faintly remember this because uh, my aging memory is not as sharp as it used to be. But uh, the way I do, I think one of the interesting parts about my uh, so-called career doing fold-ins is that I never see it folded until it's printed in the magazine. I work on three-ply illustration board, which is impossible to fold. So, uh, but what I do is I put tracing paper over it and I go back and forth until I figure that it's, it's working. So it, it, it is somewhat of a complicated uh, process from beginning to end, but I still do, I'm still doing it. And, um uh, and I still enjoy it. For me, it's, uh, it's uh, puzzle solving. And uh, I mean, the editors at mad. Uh, we all get together and decide on what the subject matter is going to be. And then I have to go back and work out a visual representation and then do all the, uh, all the words on the bottom that also have to fold in and match. So it it has that challenging puzzle aspect to it, which uh, I, because I've done so many of them, uh, it's become sort of second nature to me. The minute I see the problem, I begin I begin to visualize solutions, which even surprises me after all, all
1: these years. <laughs> so your brain can automatically start fold. Think of of how you're going to do the fold.
0: Yes, and, and, and...
2: I do. I. I I, th- I think of what the final picture has to be, and I make a sketch of that, and then I cut it, I cut the sketch in half and move it apart, and then just try to visualize what I can throw in into the middle that will work.
1: So, Al, in, the, in this example what would have been the editorial contribution would it would it have just been something like how about um, something about the generation gap and then you come up with uh you know the whole gag of the of the chasm and canyons and yeah that's that's
2: approximately how it works uh it, it, you know i used to bring in uh ideas and i'd say uh should we do something about the uh uh you know the battle over the income tax or states rights or something like that or some celebrity thing and we would sit around kicking around and and the editor would say something like uh, you know what's in everyone's mind nowadays is the generation gap you know because uh, the young people and the older people seem to be at odds uh, can't we do something with that and I say yeah I can do something with that <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh, we try to come up with a, a lead in, which is, uh, you know, the one we used here. Uh, what was it? Uh, what chasm uh, is it's greater than the grand Canyon. What chasm is greater than the grand Canyon. And, uh, and that kind of gives me the answer, the generation gap. There's, that's the gag, the gap. Right. So, uh, and then you know it's a matter of working out all the details and uh i, I don't think uh the listeners would care to hear exactly how i do that
1: <laughs> i would but but maybe we should you know when when i was a kid um we, we had a running argument in my family with me and my brothers whether you should actually crease the pages to see the actual folded image and and perfectly or keep the magazine pristine and sort of bend it and close one eye. So you can see the, see the picture. Uh, It's, it was a, it was a huge debate. I'm sure uh, fisticuffs were involved. Um, Can I, can I ask you what, what your, uh, can, can you finally resolve that for us? What, what is the proper way to do this? (laughs) <laughs>
2: well, I, I don't know if there's a proper way, but I uh, anecdotally, I can uh, give you a little background. When I first brought this idea into Mad, Al Felstein was the editor at that time. And I said to Al, I got this idea that you are going to reject, but I just want to show it to you. And he said, why will I reject it? I said, well, it mutilates the magazine. He said, let me see it. I'm intrigued. So I showed it to him. And he said, I don't know. This uh, this is very intriguing. Let me go in to the publisher, Bill Gaines, because he has to pass on these kinds of things. See what he thinks. A few minutes later, Al came back and said to me, we're going to go ahead with it. Bill Gaines said, if the kids mutilate the magazine, they'll buy another one to keep for their collection.
1: Ah, that's, that's something we never thought of. We never even considered that as a, as a possibility. Well, Leave it uh, to a publisher to think of that.
2: Right. Well, a lot of people uh, didn't fold it and tried all kinds of devices. The way you explained, <laughs> uh, Ruben, about what you and your brother did was to try and figure it out without mutilating the magazine and i've run into a lot of people who've told me the same story they didn't (laughs) they didn't want to bend the page
1: i think i think the new i think the solution is bend the page you you, you got to see it even even in this prestige format you've got to you've got to bend it and and see how it works
2: people who uh, told me they had little contests among their friends and relatives to see who could guess what the answer will be, what the picture will be. Yes, without without, without folding
0: Sure, I tried to do that. So, Al, I I have a question for you. Uh, Sure. When you came up with this idea for the fold-in, did you come up with it during the time you were working uh, with Harvey Kurtzman on Trump magazine? Because I know that Trump magazine did a lot of innovative things like the hexaflexagon and other interesting kinds of Uh, devices that kind of pushed the limitations of of what a paper paper magazine could do.
2: Well, you really are a fan. (laughs) I mean, if you remember that. Well, Harvey Kurtzman was very inventive, very creative, very inventive, and very receptive. But I didn't... uh, Harvey Kurtzman was no longer at MAD when I came up with the fold-in idea. So... Uh, it was really Al Felstein who who let me uh, go on with it. And uh, just to uh, complete that little episode, uh, I had no intention whatsoever of ever doing a second one. It was a one-time <laughs> gag idea. And I even think if Harvey had accepted it, Uh, he would have done it as a one-time gag idea because Harvey uh, just liked to go on uh, creating new things all the time and not doing uh, repetitive projects, so uh, it was Al Feldstein who came to me a couple of months after the first one ran and said I'd like you to do another fold-in, and that's and um, that, as they say, is...
1: Well, Felsing seemed to be um, more a formula-driven, uh, and Kurtzman always wanted to reinvent. Kurtzman, Harvey Kurtzman, by the way, was the founder of MAD. Uh, he then left MAD after something like 24 issues right. to form his own magazine, Trump, which you uh, talked about, Mark, and then Humbug, uh, which uh, Al worked on with him. I was involved in both of them. Uh, and then when Humbug went out of business, you went uh, w- went to Mad.
2: I went. I I had never worked for Mad right. before. I did a piece for Harvey that did appear in Mad, issue number twenty five or something like that. But uh, uh, when I became you know a sort of a permanent freelance member of Mad, when uh, Humbug folded. And I had half a dozen or more scripts that I'd written for Humbug that were useless to me now because I didn't have any magazine to show it to. So with fear and trepidation, I called up Al Feldstein and said, Al, I don't know if you regard me as the enemy because I worked for competitive Humbug and Trump but I have a bunch of scripts and I wonder, if, he said, come on down. Now, this also leads into the thing that Ruben mentioned about, uh, Felstein being more, uh, more receptive to con- continuous features. Uh, when Feldstein took over mad mad, I think became, uh, was being issued more frequently, and it was eating up material voraciously, and he he needed material. He needed written material. Artists uh, were available, but uh, writers were scarce. So uh, he was very receptive to new material and uh, was also happy to uh, repeat. The material, if if it was uh, good stuff, and I I created uh, you know snappy answers to stupid questions, which ran over and over again, and will even appear in the next issue of Mad. And I did Hawks and Doves a number of times. I love that one.
0: Oh yeah, uh, that's a fantastic one.
2: Well, I I enjoyed that one too, frankly, because of my anti-war uh, you know feelings.
0: That uh, that was
1: a that was a Vietnam War era uh, Vietnam comic war yeah. where this uh, private would always trick the general into somehow inventively uh, forming the peace symbol, whether it yes. was uh, opening a window or yes. mowing a lawn or so. Yeah, there that's was,
2: correct. It was <laughs> so cool. Really, it was, uh, if I may say so myself, it was a it was very gentle. Humor regarding a very serious business of war, and um, and I think people enjoyed it because it wasn't hitting you over the head with uh, horror stories. It was just showing the the uh, the internecine battle between a private and a major. The major was gung ho on the war, and Private Doves uh, wanted to show. Uh, you know show off the symbols so it was kind of gentle i enjoyed that
1: well there were there were very inventive ways that he would do that yes and and that was one thing mark you know I, I always i was in thinking about this i was thinking that i think one of the reasons you you must like al's work so much is because i think i realized al is really sort of the maker cartoonist he yeah uh, everything he does has sort of a um uh, Al, uh, uh, Mark is the editor of uh, Make Magazine for for creating projects and do it yourself stuff. And all of your work has not, not all of it, but so much of your work has uh, an element of do it yourself to it, of inventing something, yes. creating inventions. Yes. Uh, the fold in certainly, uh, I think that's the case. They, they, you know, you physically manipulate this as part of a puzzle. And part of the brilliance is that. You turn the reader into a confederate in telling the punchline of the joke and it involves it involves the reader, um, you know. And, and and that we can we can talk about more examples, but I want to sort of go back to uh, your early life. Uh, one of the great things that you just did was a biography uh, called Al Jaffe's Mad Life by Mary Lou Weissman. Uh, about your about your it's a biography of your life, but illustrated by you. Yes. Um, it's a terrific book and a, a fascinating story of your life, which we're not gonna have time to get into. But one of the things that happens, and I saw that, you know, as a kid in Lithuania, you and your brothers had a a, a understated an unstructured childhood. Yes, uh, that's understated to the extreme. And you and your brothers, you talk about this a lot, you would make things you would, uh, you know, toys, uh, a long apple picker to steal apples. Yes. Um, do you do you see that as as an influence in in the way that you create comics and what you've chosen to draw?
2: Very much so. Uh, when when I was uh, very young, my brother Harry and I were just a year and a half uh, apart. My father was the manager of a department store in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, every Saturday he would have uh, one of his men bring the two of us up to the department store's toy department and let us go wild in the toy department and play with all the toys. And then my mother took us to a primitive little town in Lithuania, where we spent a total of six years. Uh, and there were no toys, there were no publications. There were no comic books. There were no. There was nothing. And Harry and I, who were both able to draw very easily from the time we were born, I think, um, determined to design our own toys and build them. Of course, being able to draw made it so much easier to uh, draw a picture of what we want to make and the parts we could draw the parts separately and then go out looking for places where we can find this stuff. <laughs> and so making our own stuff became a full-time occupation for us. We, My brother, Harry built the most ingenious thing I've ever seen in my life. And he was only about eight years old. And it was a fire truck that actually squirted water. It had little ladders made out of matchsticks and uh, he, uh, he got a tin can and put two little rubber hoses in and you blow in one rubber hose and the water came out the other side. We, we could, we made everything. Uh, We, we just, uh, uh, yeah, it was just so natural for us.
1: And then when you became a cartoonist, uh, so much of what you did, it would involve the reader in making something, whether it's a fold in or even your snappy answers involve the reader. In And you always have like an empty balloon for the reader to write in. And of course, uh, as you say, uh, mangle the, uh, the the magazine. But, uh, but then also you have tons of inventions. And, yes. um, you know, I wanted to show you... Uh, one uh, an invention, one thing that I thought was so cool was you did a uh, a, a, a thing called if kids design their own Christmas toys uh, and you what you did was you drew um, pictures of uh, that a child would draw of a toy and then you actually built it, yes, but looked exactly like the drawing. So the perspective would be all all off in the physical thing that you made yes. and then you would have pictures of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is an example of, of something where you, 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 it looked like you had such great
0: fun, oh, uh, such giddy fun making, that. making these things. And, That's so cool. What it, did you make them out of? Uh, found objects
2: and, uh, you know, anything we could lay our hand. Well, I'll, <clears throat> I'll, I'll describe one thing we did, uh, which, uh, is in my biography we we wanted we we wanted our our father to buy us a, a model railroad uh, set, and he couldn't afford to do that. This was during the depression. Uh, when when we came back to New York and we were in the Bronx, and so we decided, we 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 came across a popular science magazine. It might have been Popular Mechanics or Popular Science, in which it. Showed you how to make a railroad cars and railroad tracks uh, on your own. So we we flattened out tin cans from beans and Dal Monte peaches and stuff like that. Cut them with our home scissors. Did all the soldering by holding a nail over a gas range with the pliers, and produced this railroad. Train, and uh, we put it in a science exhibit at school, and it was stolen. Yeah, no. <laughs> which was, I guess, a f- flattering.
0: Yeah, yeah, they liked but,
2: it. But, they, but we we built a movie projector. The only thing we couldn't figure out was the uh, uh, the uh, shutter, so it moved the film. But it was blurred as it oh, moved. Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: right. Because I have to
2: have the shutter go on and off. And we did it from scratch. You know, just getting tin from a tinsmith and cutting it up ourselves. It was fantastic. Uh, I can't even can't That's even imagine.
0: Amazing. So, yeah. Al, I have a question. In yes. In the uh, uh, the the fun inventions that you have in Mad Magazine, like the. Uh, the cup with the straw in it, that's the cup that has a straw that's attached to the lid so it won't spill. I mean, a lot of these things are are very close to being practical, really cool inventions. And I'm wondering if there's there was ever anything that you had featured in the magazine that you later saw had actually uh, gone to market by someone else.
2: Yes, two things that come to mind but there were others as well which i don't remember uh one of them i was i was even mentioned in the patent that somebody took out uh, they mentioned mad magazine uh because you you have to tell uh you're supposed to tell what what uh whatever inspired you yes. and uh, uh and i think that was the uh the uh, smokeless ashtray that where you you put your cigarette on the in this ashtray, and it pulls the smoke down into the ashtray and filters it and blows it out as clean air. Uh, that was actually manufactured. Another thing was a, a Ferris wheel parking garage that I uh, did for Mad, and uh, and a few years later uh, noticed that they built one in switzerland now i'm not saying that any of these people stole my idea uh it may be coincidental because uh i heard that uh, uh 15 people claim to have invented the telephone so <laughs>
1: <laughs> at least two can can invent a ferris wheel parking lot but 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 it, you were mentioned in the patent as a uh as an inspiration for the smokeless uh, uh, Mad, ashtray, Mad
2: Magazine, was was so mentioned.
1: it seems like you, it seems like that. How can they mention you and yet not uh, not uh, include you in the uh, in the patent? I get
2: well, guess. <laughs> well uh, you know, I was just simply an employee, uh, not an employee, but a contributor to Mad, and uh, uh, Mad was copyrighted, and I think they had oh, was, to-
1: was was Mad in um, uh, involved in that patent?
2: No, they weren't involved, but they were. Uh, I I I don't know what the term is, is for w- what might have kickstarted your thinking, but that's that's you have to mention if you saw something like it somewhere. I see. It might and,
0: be called prior art. In prior okay. art, you have to,
2: but you you maintain that you carried it to to fruition. I see.
0: Yeah. I, I remember you did one uh, that was similar with uh, a cigarette exhaust fan where a guy had uh, hid the little exhaust fan in his beard. Yes. Well, part <laughs> that it's funny.
2: Crazy article. Uh, well, you know, I, I also did an article about uh, how automobile manufacturers could prevent drunken driving and that is by having a sensor in the steering wheel that shuts the engine down if it detects a certain uh, amount of alcohol, like the breathalyzer detects.
0: That's a great idea.
2: And I think that's a very sensible idea. I don't know if that was ever made. I
0: think that exists. I think think it does, too. I think if you are convicted of a DUI in some states, you have to... Buy one of these things and have it hooked up to your car,
1: right? And it won't start unless you, when you unless when you blow in, uh, it um, it detects that your blood alcohol is low enough. Uh, and I think that the joke now is that people they keep asking their friends to start their car for them. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure how effective that is.
2: Well, I think if you go back to the issue of med that mine appeared in which I think might have been uh, 1960 eight or something like that. It might have been prior to the to the to the manufacture of this.
1: Oh I'm sure it was. I'm sure that's gonna be new. Is this still on? Yeah. Um you know what you do uh, Mark, you still there?
0: Yeah I'm here. Okay good good.
1: Um one of the, uh, you know, you do all kinds, and some of your inventions are totally implausible. Uh, you always have a humorous element to them. Some of them are, 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 are all humor and no plausibility. Uh, I've loved your book. It's long, long out of print, The Mad Book of Magic and Other Dirty Tricks. Uh, and in that one, you have uh, all kinds of crazy uh, magic tricks uh, that just take magic to an absurd level. Uh, for example, the one that always cracked me up from when I was a kid till now was the magic trick where the magician has a wristwatch on one arm and then suddenly it's on the other arm, and the way that you have you explain that it's done in your uh, in your secret explanation is that they have you have trained fleas that that undo the wristwatch and carry their wristwatch under his clothes right. to the other to the other wrist. <laughs> Uh, so some some of the uh, you always have an inventive element to it. Sometimes it's just just outrageous. It's not an
2: inventive element. It reveals my mental illness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but these these old books are, are great. I'd love to see them them uh, reprinted as well. They're, they're uh, because uh, they're just just hilarious. Um, well,
2: the magic book was was my favorite of all, even though the uh, Snapping Answers books. Outsold the mad bo- magic book by by many many thousands, hundreds of thousands. Um, the magic book was the most fun for me because, uh, you know, being able to tongue in cheek take a magic trick uh, or create a magic trick that is, uh, uh, as I was mentioning before, like. Uh, you tell your audience you cannot get blood from a stone and then you 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 proceed to demonstrate how simple it is to actually do that and of course it's uh, you, you you embed all kinds of pins and needles in the stone beforehand and then when you when you squeeze it you're going to get blood from a stone it's your
1: own blood it's your own blood
2: but it's just the preposterousness of of, uh, of it. In, in no way does it expose actual magic tricks. It's just I I take the usual magic tricks and uh, and uh, just have some fun with them. It was it was really a fun book to do because uh, uh, magic was had, had always intrigued me, and so I got a chance to play with it.
0: I, uh, I remember that book well. That, that was one of my favorites, too. Uh, I don't have the copy anymore. You know, these kinds of things get lost as you grow up. So I'm looking on Amazon. Uh, if you want to buy a used copy in very good or better condition, you will have to be prepared to pay between $58 and $155 for a copy.
1: There wow. you go. There you go. You see, I, I brought mine to uh, Al's studio, and it's held together by a rubber band. Um, <laughs> not not many uh, artifacts survived my uh, childhood. A handful of books. This was this was one of them. Well, you read it so often. Yeah, yeah, and I and apart. millions of moves from one place to another, and this yeah. kept getting kept getting packed. It's really silly fun, and it shows that. You know, whatever your work is, you know whether it's inventions or anything, whatever you come up with, it's the, your, the bottom line is always funny. It's it's just a really funny work. Well, I
2: must be a frustrated inventor because the uh, I think the thing that makes my mad inventions work because they're all ridiculous. I mean, if if they weren't ridiculous, it wouldn't appear in Mad and it wouldn't be funny. So. But you have to make it seem like it could be, it could be on the market. It 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 has to have a logic to it, even though it's outlandish. And because I'm a frustrated inventor, really, I make it. I I I don't uh, slough off on on uh, on. I say, you know, you don't need this gear or that gear. It'll somehow it'll it'll work. Right. No, I have to show that it will work, (laughs) even though it's accomplishing nothing worthwhile.
1: Well, I think that's true of, you know, a lot of as you know, Mad Magazine knows this very well. You know, well, satirists know well, when you're satirizing something, it's very important to get the details right. Right. Uh, even if the reader doesn't fully, uh, fully comprehend that it's been gotten right, the art has to look right. Um, you know, when you're satirizing some kind of artwork, the closer you can get to it, and that's something that I uh, often struggle with. Uh, the the more successful the satire is. So the yes. fact that your stuff actually works, it 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 just registers with the reader that this guy put the time in, even if he doesn't know that that gear would actually yes. be the thing that would work. Put the time in that this works, and that makes it funnier. And that is the, that's always your ultimate goal. Well, my, my, uh,
2: my training was with, uh, Harvey Kurtzman on, uh, Trump and, uh, Humbug Harvey, uh, just would not, uh, allow it to be, uh, casually done. He would, he would, he he, he would say to me as an editor, he he would look at the, my drawing of something and say, well, this really doesn't uh, look like it'll work. Uh, can't you make it actually work? And so I having had to give that to Harvey, I gave up my uh, funny Rube Goldberg kind of cartoon uh, feeling where... Uh, you know, just uh, show something dropping from the ceiling and landing on a catapult, and it works, you know. Harvey would say, no, it has to come from somewhere logical. And uh, so he convinced me of that, and, uh, and I respected Harvey a great deal. And, uh, and then, of course, when I worked with Al Feldstein as editor of Mad, uh, Al had a very good mind. Uh, and uh, he also appreciated uh, accuracy in, in these things. and so uh, I enjoyed working with these two guys.
1: It, it does it, it makes it funnier and that's, and that's the bottom line and, that, and you know there uh, Kurtzman was a master satirist, you know the best of a, of a generation. And when you look at his uh, the satires that he wrote and edited, uh, they were, you know, the art that he was when he was having a comic strip um, satirized, the art was perfect. He got guys, yourself included, but uh, Elder and Wood who could exactly get yes. the, the look of the art. And I'm sure he settled for nothing less because that's he paid attention, be funnier.
2: He paid attention to the, um, the smallest details. For example, uh, if I could explain. Exp- on that a bit more I would do a page for Harvey and I'd bring it I'd bring it in and he'd say leave it with me and he said I'll call you this would be penciling and he said I'll I'll call you when it's it's ready to be picked up I'd pick it up and he'd put a sheet of uh, of, uh, tracing paper over it And it would have two dozen, three dozen uh, corrections, uh, adjustments, and every one of them would be right. (laughs) Uh, Even though it was, uh, you know, a pain in the butt to have to redraw things, he would, uh, if it was an automobile, he would create a vanishing point so that the automobile was in perspective. Right. And not just a cartoony automobile. Uh, he would put the wheels into perspective so that they weren't too elliptical, since they were coming from a distance. Uh, he, he 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 just edited every part of the drawing, and it wasn't you know it wasn't like you had to redraw the whole thing. You just had to make the the, the little adjustments to make it come out. Right, and I never objected to it. Other artists couldn't work. There were artists who couldn't work with Harvey because they were freewheeling and uh, they didn't think it was that important that things uh, match up or line up. Or, but I felt the same way that Harvey did and and so I was, it was easy for me to pick that up. Uh, working with Al Feldstein, it was a lot freer. He was he was more interested in how funny the object looked. But he was also uh, critical of, of anything that was out of proportion. And uh, he just looked at it a little bit differently. Yeah. But between the two of them, uh, I knew exactly how to approach the job yeah. after a while. And uh, they didn't have to make corrections.
0: That's interesting because... Harvey Kurtzman's work, uh, you know, like uh, thinking of his Hey Look comic strips in the early days or his war comics, had a kind of looseness to them. But then Al Feldstein's covers for Weird Science and Weird Fantasy were very tight and almost like technical illustrations. And yet they had different uh, approaches that almost seemed like they, they were asking for the opposite in the people that they were editing,
2: Yes, that's true. Uh, Harvey Harvey did try to to, uh, 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 steer uh, all the work in the magazine in a particular direction because he felt, you know, he created the magazine and he had a vision as to where he wanted to go with it. Uh, He wanted it to look like uh, a serious... Satire magazine and not a comic book. Uh, uh, Al Feldstein became more interested in uh, the humor, and uh, so he he was more lenient when it came to doing uh, uh, funny stuff. If if it was funny, he was he wasn't a stickler for every you know, dotting every I and crossing every T. So it, it's, each one of them was very effective in his own way. And it, it, it was just natural for the magazine, for Mad Magazine to change when Feldstein took over from Kurtzman. And of course it became financially far more successful under uh, Feldstein than it was under Kurtzman. But then again, Al did have more time to develop the magazine.
0: Sure, and, and I love the comic book version of Mad and the magazine version of Mad equally for different reasons. They're both fantastic.
2: Yes, I agree. But it was it was a period of crea- uh, you know of bursting creativity. Uh, satire in in comic books was uh, un, unheard of. There were plenty of so-called humorous comic books with little rabbits and mice and all that. But uh, Harvey was, I think, the first one to actually do a serious satire magazine in comics, satirizing uh, Superman and Batman and so many other, and Sherlock Holmes and very various, various things. Uh, and, and doing it was you know, with attention to detail, uh, getting as close to the real thing as possible and then just taking off. Oh, yeah.
0: Did you, meet, did you meet Harvey through uh, Will Elder? Because I know that you and Will Elder were like childhood friends, right?
2: Uh, Will Elder and I, uh, yes, we, we met in junior high school. Uh, Harvey, we met in high school. And Harvey later told us that when he came into the high school of music and art, uh, and we were already uh, several years ahead of him, he said he determined that someday he, he he saw our work in high school. A lot of it was funny stuff. And he, what he told me later was that he was waiting for the day when, he could get somebody to bankroll him in a magazine so that he could hire the people that he knew in high school who would be terrific in a magazine that he had in mind, such as Mad. And he got Will Elder, and he called me and tried to get me to work for Mad, uh, but I couldn't at that time. And John Severin was another Fellow from high school, whom he managed to get to work for him. And then, of course, he picked up Jack Davis and uh, Wally Wood. And uh, be- as an employee of uh, uh, EC Comics, he was able to uh, use the cartoonists that were working on the horror magazines and the uh, uh, military magazines, the war magazines. So you know, we all we all bounced off each other every now and then, and uh, at some point, we all came together.
1: It's an amazing um, uh, thing to think of as a young high school student. Look at the the couple of older kids who are great artists, and say, "I'm going to make a magazine using these guys," uh, and then actually do it. Yeah, actually, and actually, did. actually did it, and it became. Uh, a worldwide phenomenon that changed uh, the history of humor, really. Uh, so it's really incredible. Well, Harvey was, was obsessed with, with producing magazines. When he was just
2: a kid, he made hand, handmade little magazines that he distributed in the, in the neighborhood, little cartoon magazines. Uh, they, this was a dream of his since probably he was out of diapers and uh, and I think he he set the tone. He was uh, he was an innovator.
0: He really was. Um, do you think that uh, he was treated unfairly with by by Hugh Hefner with the way that he kind of had Trump pulled out from under him just after a few issues.
2: Uh. I really don't have uh, much information on that, to tell you the truth. Uh, the the thing that I know about uh, Trump was that uh, magazines, mm-hmm. at, at the same time that Trump was, was came into existence, uh, major magazines in the United States were folding. Saturday Saturday Evening Post, which was a uh, a standard uh, went out of business Collier's magazine went out of business uh, Liberty magazine had gone out of business uh, a number of years before and, and 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 others were folding it was just a bad time for magazines and uh, what Hefner told us was that uh, the bank that he depended on to produce his successful magazine, Playboy, was under a stress uh, because of all the things that he was invested in—the uh, Playboy clubs and 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 our magazine, Trump—and he was told that he had to divest of some some things in order to, uh, you know, make his uh, financial position more secure and continue to get loans to keep doing playboy. So that's the story that, as I know it, uh, I later heard that it's also possible that Trump might've been, uh, uh, stopped because we, we weren't keeping to a schedule. Harvey, uh, always had a battle with uh, deadlines and uh, of course, unlike Mad uh, and Trump and uh, Humbug, uh, Hefner had the notion of creating a uh, slick humor magazine, Trump, which would be a sister magazine to Playboy and carry advertising the way Playboy does. And if it doesn't come out on schedule, you can't sell advertising. So these are the two stories that I heard, and uh, I don't know if, they're, if either one or both are wrong, but that's as much as I know.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty close to the story I heard, uh, and I also heard that Trump was just uh, had such high production values that it was quite expensive.
2: Yes, it was very expensive and it sold for double the price that mad sold for for and someone that I knew who was uh, who I was very knowledgeable and who I respected greatly looked at the first issue of Trump and said, "I think this is a mistake uh, he said uh, he by the way, was a professor at a very prestigious uh, university. And he was a friend of mine, and he said, I think this is a mistake because the charm and appeal of Mad Magazine is that it's it's a grungy, little, cheap little magazine printed on new, cheap newsprint, and it appeals to the uh, rebelliousness of college and high school kids who uh, see it as the total opposite of all the slick, fancy, expensive magazines, and you're going to lose that audience. And I think that probably would have uh, probably would have been true.
0: Yeah, that seems that's a pretty astute observation. I would I say. I
1: think. It was, yeah. How how did, how did you meet uh, Will Elder? Because he's the other he's this, the other high school student. Uh, that uh, Harvey looked up to uh, and you guys became such, and Will Elder is such a great artist and became such an, another mainstay of Mad Magazine and collaborated with Harvey Um uh,
2: Willie Elder and I, uh, I don't know if you want me to tell the whole dreary story. I can make Sure,
0: it, please do.
2: Okay, we were uh, we didn't know each other, but we were attending a, a junior high school in the Bronx, in New York. And uh, one day, uh, many kids were selected to go up to the art room, and when we, and I was one of them. I had never met Willie before, and uh, I went up there, and a monitor. A teacher said, I'm going to give you all sheets of paper and pencils, and you are to draw something. So there were about 50 kids in the room, and the only thing I could think of to draw was uh, a scene I had not two, uh, just a couple of years before, returned from Lithuania after living there for a total of six years, and and I was only twelve at this point, so uh, I, I, the only thing I could think of to draw was the the central marketplace in in the, this little town that I lived in in Lithuania, and I started to draw that. And I, I looked over the shoulder of a little skinny kid in front of me, and he's doing this beautiful portrait of a peasant. I mean. A real drawing, to me, it looked like a Rembrandt. And to make a long story short, the teacher dismissed everybody except this little skinny guy in front and me and told us to go down to the principal's office. We're sitting in the principal's office and this little kid says to me, you know, I think they're going to send us to art school. (laughs) <laughs> sure enough the principal calls us in and says Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia of the city of New York has created a new high school for the for talented musicians and artists and you too have been selected to go there and uh, that's how Will Elder and I met and we then became neighbors in the Bronx and uh, attended the high school of music and art where we got to know each other as very close friends. And, uh, and that's the story. And we were highly competitive with each other. Each one of us would draw a comic strip and then show it to the other one to humiliate the other one. (laughs) And, and each one of us tried to outdo each other. But it was all in, in, in good fun and friendship.
0: That's awesome. This has just been a, a goldmine of, of uh, information about uh, you and your collaborators. Uh, the, the EC talent pool is just phenomenal. And it's amazing how all these great talents got together. At the same time, and and produce stuff that still resonates so much with with readers of all ages, and uh, it, it's been wonderful to talk to you, b- being part of that that great cast of of uh, artists. Uh, it, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Al. It's been a great pleasure.
2: Well, it's a great privilege for me too, because one of the uh, things that I cherish more than anything is running into so many people like yourself who were influenced by our work. And it just, uh, gives a feeling, a special feeling of continuity that, uh, when I go to comic cons and, uh, and uh, in one occasion, three generations of the same family—a a grandfather, father, and son—were all <laughs> mad readers. And uh, uh, it's it's really gratifying to know that we uh, we re- reached and uh, and entertained and amused and influenced to some degree uh, so many people. Uh, for me. Personally, now that I'm in my ninetieth year, it's extremely gratifying.
0: Yeah, I'll bet it is. I mean, it, there are very few people on the planet that have touched so many other souls as as you have, and so that must be a great feeling. Thank you. That's that's great. And you
1: know, I I don't want to end this without uh, doing some business for Al. I just wanted uh, I want to. Uh, To say again that his the brand new book, this this beautiful book, the uh, Mad Folden Collection, nineteen sixty four to two thousand and ten, from Chronicle Books, just came out last month, and now out in paper book is the biography that uh, I thought was just uh, amazing, uh, telling uh, all these stories from uh, his uh, professional life, but also his amazing, uh, fascinating childhood. is called Al Jaffe's Mad Life by Mary Lou Wiseman, illustrated by Al Jaffe. And that is from uh HarperCollins, but it's uh, is it iBooks? It Books. It Books. ItBooks Harper HarperCollins. That's that okay. Ha-
0: great. I'll have links to both of those on, on Boing Boing uh, in the show notes so that people can just click and order. Great. Great, Mark. Thanks so much, Al. No, I thank you. Thank you, Al. And thanks a lot, Ruben. It's a great pleasure. I'm so glad to be in this studio. Yeah, that's great. It's <laughs> well, a have... great
1: excuse to come here.
0: Oh, yeah, that sounds... I'm jealous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I've been an admirer of Ruben Bowling for many, many years.
0: Don't edit that out, Mark. <laughs> That'll yeah, stay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, you guys. Have a thanks great weekend. Okay, bye-bye. 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 That wraps up another episode of Geek. To listen to past episodes, visit geek.net. That's spelled g-w-e-e-k.net. We're going to close with a song called Sea Monkeys by the band Darling Pet Monkey. All the songs on their forthcoming album are based on old comic book ads, and they're all instant garage punk classics. See the show notes at geek.net to find out more about Darling Pet Monkey. See you next week.